This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Chris Voss, I am not going to negotiate with you because I've read a series of negotiations you did in your book, Never Split the Difference, negotiating as if your life depended on it. Right. And you were the lead international crisis negotiator for the FBI for many years. You worked for the FBI for 24 years. Right. You've been in 150 uh, negotiations, often involving life or death. Give me an example of one. There are many examples in the book, of course, and the book's excellent. But the, And by the way, the whole book's about negotiating the relationship between your hostage negotiations and your more current business of helping people with business negotiations. So it's maybe the best book on negotiating I've ever read. Thank you. What, what was an example of like a hostage negotiation? Well, you know, a lot of the stuff, uh, mostly international kidnappings, and a kidnapping is a commodities game. Uh, you know, for us, it's horrifying. Which, for by them. the way, I never would have thought of it that way. Right, exactly. You know, but uh, in any negotiation, you got to know how the other guy looks at it and how they see themselves. And kidnappers actually see themselves as just hard bargaining commodities guys. And so we're working a case. Steve Santani, a Fox News reporter, gets grabbed in the Gaza Strip. And, you know, I plug into uh, Fox News, and they're very receptive to us being involved. And really what I did as an international kidnapping negotiator was really I was a negotiation coach. I coached negotiations all over the world. Because And, and you say coach because they don't want to deal with you. They want right. to deal with—they they don't want to think there's an expert behind. And right. part, part of your exactly. job is making sure that the person doing the negotiation on your side is, doesn't appear so clever that it seems like— you know, the police or the FBI or you are behind exactly. the scenes. Right, right, right. You know, they got to stay genuine. They got to be true to who they are. And they got to then take the advantage of their natural tendencies. And so we're working a Santani case. And uh, and he originally, he just disappeared. And the Gaza Strip is, you know, I mean, it's a fishbowl. So it's hard for anybody to really disappear there. They initially thought that he was probably dead because they heard nothing from the kidnappers. And, and uh Fox, understandably, very concerned about their people. You know, they, they were phenomenal as far as being concerned for their people, very caring. And then suddenly when the negotiations became engaged, you know, then uh, we started to work a little magic through the media, media statements. Uh, you know, the idea that communication is concession is, is absurd. Communication is power. What, what do you mean, communications, concessions? Well, you know, some, some people are afraid to negotiate because they think that simply by talking, you're conceding. Mm. Uh, and those are weak-minded people. Mm. You know, you gain tremendous power by, by engaging in communication. That gives you an opportunity to really— Well, how else are you supposed to get the, the hostage back? Yeah, exactly. How else are you supposed to do it? And the communication doesn't always have to be direct. I mean, uh, I've always loved to say the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. So we started coaching people on media statements and putting the kidnappers in, in a bad position by what was being said in the media. Everybody's aware of the media. And so you would call them cowards as opposed to terrorists, or what would you do? You know, that's a good point. Um, when we're dealing with terrorists, it's best to paint them as cowards. But the, the first thing to do is actually to demonstrate some respect in the media, because if you can demonstrate respect, it shows you're worthy of respect. And so you start off not by calling them names, and we actually coach people to say we're, we're talking to the men that are holding Steve. Um, and that changes the dynamic immediately, and it causes them to deal with you in a different way. Uh, the respect reciprocity is extremely strong, and you really gain the upper hand by demonstrating respect first, which a lot of people are afraid to do that, which is exactly why you gain the upper hand. We started demonstrating respect, 
And so this, you call this in a, some ways, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to link this back to your book in different points. This is part of your labeling, uh, right? Where you're kind of giving them, you know, f- figuring out what their motives might yeah. be, labeling their motives and emotions. Yeah. So by, by calling them men who are holding Steve as opposed to terrorists, you're essentially, um, beginning the process of labeling almost. Right. You're, you're beginning to reframe it. You're definitely trying to reach across without them knowing it and punch emotional buttons that they don't know that you're punching, mm-hmm. which is a sign of a great negotiator. I mean, you know, uh, punching an emotional button, uh, you can do it a lot of times in business negotiations in, in the United States happens all the time with the word fair. Fair is a great emotional button pusher. I want to get to fair in a second, but I want to hear how this negotiation with um, the the Fox News reporter turned out. All right, so um, then then uh, the kid uh, the uh, attitude from the kidnappers changed immediately. They fl- uh, switched more over into business negotiators, and uh, then they asked for uh, we asked for some proof of life, which they came close to hitting properly, but we actually you know it's fine details. They didn't come back with the exact right answers. Can I ask? Um, and I'm sorry I interrupt a lot. Like no, every no, time good. I get curious. I, yeah, yeah. So, so when you say you ask for proof of life, as you point out, there's two ways to do it. You can ask for a fact, like, oh, what's this guy's middle name? Or you can ask a oh, more open-ended, what you call a calibrated question. Right. Um, you really have know? read the book. Look I, at you. Of course. <laughs> I want to be a better negotiator, and I'm preparing for you, a, a great negotiator. So you can ask, how do I know he's alive? Which is a little more open-ended, and it kind of outsources more work to them as opposed to just getting a fact. Right, exactly. It burdens them with the process. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with a dangerous negotiator, a tough negotiator, you know, you burden them with the process. I mean, I, I'd say anybody dealing with Donald Trump, you know, start asking him open-ended questions, get out of the fight. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a fighter wants to fight, and they're caught off guard when you don't fight. So burden them with the process, and, you know, how do we know somebody's alive? How do we know if we pay you that uh, you're gonna, he's going to come out? And so, so what did you ask specifically to get proof of life here? Well, they, they offered some uh, very specific questions, sort of like security-type questions. And so we, 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 gave them, we provided those because we wanted to see what the process was going to bring to us. And when they came close but didn't answer them specifically, instead of capitulating and saying, oh, that's close enough, we said, no, you know, that, that's not right. We're not, we're not going to proceed. And because you your, your assumption right. is, and this is kind of the, um, a theme throughout many of your negotiations, your assumption is is that slowing down the process is not necessarily dangerous for you. It's not like they're going to cut off an ear and send it to you um, right. to say, you know, put up or shut right. up. Uh, you're, you're, you're still treating them with respect, but you're extending right. the process because maybe statistically you know it, it, it doesn't go badly for you this way. Right. Well, we refer to that as the delay that saves time. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in, in any negotiation process, if you slow it down and you're a little bit more deliberate, you immediately begin to gain the upper hand. You see more opportunities. That's because I I thought that was a really fascinating point in the book that they need you just as much as you need them. It's not as if you have to be scared that suddenly they're going to disappear because they actually kidnap the person for a reason that they need. Right. And 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 it's a sole buyer. I mean, it's really, it's a buyer's market and a kidnapping game. You've got a seller who can only sell them to one person on the entire planet. There's tremendous leverage in there if you recognize the leverage. And so we just simply recognize that leverage and, and learn how to use the emotions to our advantage. And then it moved extremely quickly after that point. They realized that, for example, that they no longer had the upper hand on a very subconscious level. And Steve and his, and his cameraman were out in just about, 
I, it went. It was probably less than 24 hours after proof of life. It went really fast. So, 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 in other words, you um, said that this proof of life wasn't good enough. So you were starting to be suspected. They were they afraid you were going to just go silent? No. Uh, when when I think they felt that they were dealing with somebody that was not wasn't a pushover, um, and th- that was a key. And that, I was a little surprised at how quickly it went after that. Um, and I think in many cases, a uh, power negotiator. When suddenly they're met with their match and it's not a fight, they're 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 very awkward with that. They don't know exactly how to deal with that. I mean, I liken it very much to uh, the way the Speaker of the House has been dealing with Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't really want to engage with Paul Ryan that much anymore, and I think Paul Ryan has really outmaneuvered him in a no- number of ways by not being combative. Hmm. And it's a, I think it's a it's a very close analogy. And any time a combative negotiator is being sort of tied in knots, but they don't know that you're doing it to them, they grow weary of it very quickly and they don't want to engage anymore because they only see open combat. So so in, in some sense, when you pushed back on their proof of life, you were, you were uh, tying them in knots to some extent and they got confused or something. And did you pay money? Did you pay a ransom? You know, um, I don't think we had nothing to do with whether or not. Sometimes it was necessary to coach payments because we would try to draw them out in the open in a sting operation, if you will. And um, uh, I never saw any evidence whatsoever that, that anyone paid anything for Steve and his cameraman. Um, I, you know, there were rumblings after the facts that Fox may have. I don't think they did. I didn't see any evidence of it. I think the kidnappers just found themselves in a position where they, it was bad for them to continue to hold those two hostages, and they needed to get out of it. And so they found a face-saving way to make a deal and let them go. So, so... Uh, let me put this in a business context. And I like the example you use in your book. You went to a car dealership, you right. saw a car you liked, uh, and the salesman said, uh, $36,000. And then right. you kicked into gear. It was almost like a, it almost seemed like you were just having fun for the heck of it. But <laughs> so, so I'll pretend to be the salesman. Okay. And I just want to reenact that, that negotiation. So okay. Sticker price is $36,000. Right, right, right. You know, I mean, and it's worth that. I mean, it's beautiful. I love it. I love it that it's one of the only ones around here. Thank you, sir. And 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 I love it. I just, I'm sorry, I just can't pay that. All right, so what what can you pay then? Well, I could, you know, I could I could do 30. I could do $30,000. That's, that's what I have for it. I'm sorry, sir. The blue book says 36000 My manager won't let me go. let go lower than $36,000. Um you know, and I don't blame you because the fact that you're even still talking to me at all is wonderfully generous of you. I mean, and I feel really bad because because I only have 30 and that's wor- it's worth 36,000. It's beautiful. I love it. The blue book is that. I mean, it's probably it's probably a bargain at 36, but how am I supposed to do that? I love that. How am I supposed to do that? Like just the continual outsourcing to the Okay, so then the guy went into his manager, came back to you and said, "Uh, you win." It's thirty four thousand five hundred. Right, right. And I said, and I said, oh wow, you are so generous. I mean, it's wonderful. Thirty four thousand five hundred is a great price. It's actually worth thirty six thousand every dime. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. But if I can only do thirty thousand dollars, how am I supposed to do thirty four five? So, so I guess so. What you're kind of saying is that you're not negotiating. You're not lying. <laughs> Like thirty thousand really is it? Like if you moved up at all, he would basically say there's a negotiation, and then he would try to find something in the middle. He would split the difference, in other right, words, right, right. the opposite of your title. And but for you, by sticking to thirty thousand, he has to keep going back to the manager. What if he really couldn't go lower than 
34,000 at this point. Well, that you know, that's exactly what I want to find out. I mean, the point of negotiation is for how, find out how much money's on the table. How far can I push the other side without insulting them, keeping them engaged? You know, and, and uh, what we're horrified at the other side saying, the worst thing you could ever say is like, look, if you want it, you have to pay that. And that, and that, that's the answer I ultimately want. I want you to go to that point because we're still talking. You're not mad at me, and, and I have pushed you to your limit. And I'll say one or two more things just to make sure that your, your position is firm, and then I have, a de- I have a decision to make. So if he had said, if he had just stood his ground there and said, listen, I can't even go back to my manager on this, 34,500 5, 34, is it. Otherwise, you know, have a nice day. I just can't do anything. What would you have done at that point? Well, then, then uh, I prepare. I prepare to end on a positive note. I mean, we've got almost a surefire way to to the very last probe is for me to look at you and say, "It sounds like there's nothing you could do. It sounds like you're powerless at this point." Now, nobody on the planet wants to admit that they're powerless. Mm-hmm. That is like the worst, hor- most horrific thing. And I've said this in a really nice way. And, and also nobody likes to say yes, because you don't know what you're letting yourself in for. And you don't want to say, yes, I'm powerless. So at that point in time, I know you're going to hesitate. You're going to search your mind. You'll maybe ask me for another day or two if you actually can't find anything at that point in time. But if you have any way to give yourself power back, which this statement is completely taken away from you, you don't want to say, yes, I'm powerless. So if you if you look at me then at that point in time say yeah I'm that's it then I then I know I push you as far as I can and we're still talking by the nature of your response we're still talking you haven't turned burst into flames and screamed at me and insulted my family and demanded that I leave you you know I push you as far as I can without actually hurting your our relationship and again now I've got a decision to make and we a, a number of people we've made a bunch of deals at the very end by saying you know, it sounds like there's nothing else I could say. It sounds like you're powerless here. And they went, okay, Would well, you ever I say that in this. a life or death situation? Like, is there a hostage situation where you've said that? We keep going in a hostage situation. We'll ultimately get into a bar- uh, the bargaining phase and a back and forth. Um, and we'll, we'll want to talk long enough so that we know what the other side actually looks like when they're telling the truth. Uh, because, you know, you can't sue a kidnapper. You can't, you can't threaten to take him to court. So and you can't really risk the kidnapper killing the hostage. Right. When we know what risk looks like, I, I, uh, I can begin to predict, if I talk to you long enough, what you sound like when you're bluffing and what you sound like when you really mean it. And specificity is a great gauge. What do you mean by that? If, I, if, you, if uh, a kidnapper says, look, if, if you don't pay, then he's going to die. That's kind of vague. It doesn't tell me when, where, or how. Hmm. But if the kidnapper says, if you don't pay, we're going to kill him tomorrow, it says when it's going to happen and who's going to do it. But you also mentioned in the book, in 100% of the cases, except one, which you refer to in the book, in 100% of the cases, when they say, I'm going to kill the hostage tomorrow, they never do it tomorrow. Yeah, and because we've listened to them long enough and... What's the specificity? Like sometimes they never said when the when the timeline gets started. Hmm. Um, we we know what vague threats sound like, and in a minute you start adding any sort of specificity to a threat. And it's the same with business negotiation. Like if you don't make this deal, I'm out of here. Well, maybe the guy might mean I'm out of here to go down the hall to go to the bathroom just to take a break. I mean, people that make threats always leave themselves an out. And you look at the threat, and hmm. and and you say in in a business deal, 
How many outs have they let, left themselves here? How many ways can they not carry through the threat and say, oh, well, you know, I never said I was leaving. I just said, you know, I'm out of here. Right? Never said I would never talk to you again. And, and there are a lot of uh, bare-knuckle business negotiators that understand, you know, the idea of a vague threat and demonstrative slam the hands down on the table and huff and puff and go outside to get a cup of coffee that they plan to go get anyway. So I want to I get more into the specific techniques, but I have two more general questions on, on your background and, and how you got into this. But what's the s- most scared you've ever been in the middle of a hostage negotiation? And we can also get to business negotiations later, but I'm really curious where you were put to the test emotionally in a hostage situation. Well, you know, while, while one was going on, I mean, I, uh, one of the first cases I ever worked is um, was the kidnapping in the Philippines. Um, I, I'm blank. I'm blanking on his name right now, but it, it'll come back to the me. The Burnham? Uh, no, before that, uh, Jeff Schilling. Okay. All right, and and that was when I realized, you know, this is going to sound stupid, but terrorists got moms. Terrorists have moms. Uh, every, I like that as a topic, as a title of an article. Terrorists have moms. Terrorists have moms. You know, and so every terrorist on the planet, no matter what we think of them, uh, had a mom, which means his initial view of women in the world was started by. His interaction with his mother might not have had sisters, might not have had girlfriends, might not have had daughters. Every one of those things, when they come into a man's life, begins to change his perspective. And they'll often say a man's view of the world, you know, a a recent uh, observation on Trump was, you know, his perspective for his wife and his perspective for his daughter, two different things. His perspective for his mother, the first thing he started out with. But so every terrorist's got a mom. And we're working a shilling case, and we'd already been through, passed through some important touch points, and we'd finally pushed them to the point where they'd had enough, and we'd actually already learned that the leader of the group was susceptible to the mother idea. We'd punched his button several months earlier by discussing Schilling's mom, and, and he reacted like, oh, my God, his mother knows about this? So what did you say specifically? Well, they were threatening that they were, her, they, they were torturing him. We didn't think they were, that they were. But well, why re- didn't you think that? Of the vagueness of the threats. Again, there wasn't enough specificity to the tra- threats. It was a, a throwaway, and we perceived it as a way to punch our buttons. And my boss at the time, Gary Nessner, said, you know what, find a way to mention Schilling's mother's concern for him here. And I remember at the time thinking, that's the dumbest idea I have ever heard. A terrorist is going to care about this guy's mother? I mean, please. But, you know, uh, my boss had great insight, and, and I didn't see any downside to it. And in the middle of the negotiation, we we told the terrorists, we said, look, you know, Jeff's mom's worried about it, about him. And it, and this murdering sociopathic terrorist literally said, his mother knows about this? Mm. You tell his mother he's okay. Mm. And that was an emotional, quick, instantaneous response because we, we, were tr- we hit an emotional button. So much later in the case, they finally came up with a threat where we were I remember going to bed that night thinking tomorrow morning Jeff Schilling's head could be separated from his body. And what they'd done is they'd said, um, we were going to execute Jeffrey for his sins. And there were two critical words in there. Execute, an executioner is not guilty of murder. Hmm. So if uh, an executioner is carrying out... In their mind, they're not. They're they're carrying out uh, the will of of a, a recognized authority if you're an executioner. So the, the part of that statement was removing responsibility for killing Jeff off their shoulders. And then the second thing that really bothered us is they said for his sins. And the minute you begin to connect someone with God or that they've sinned, sinning is worse than doing wrong. 
sinning is the ultimate wrong, which justifies the execution. So it was that point in time that we decided to play the mom card again because Terrace got moms. And we flew Jeffrey's mother to the Philippines and engaged in a very heavy media campaign, tremendous visibility for his mother, pictures of Jeffrey as a little boy, a lot of things like that um, because Terrace care about the media, you know. Donald Trump cares about the media. He said all media is all publicity is good publicity. He doesn't feel that way now because there's been plenty of bad publicity come out that he doesn't like. Mm. So there's always bad publicity, and terrorists care about bad publicity. And with this intense media campaign in the Philippines, and the Philippine media loves these sorts of issues, um, the again, the, the murdering sociopathic terrorists came out of the media and said, because Jeffrey's mother's here, we're not going to kill him. Terrorists got moms, and we knew that that was a way to punch their buttons. And ultimately, at that point in time, we had them so off guard and so so disorganized that very shortly thereafter, less than a week after that, uh, Jeffrey walked away. And just and you didn't have to pay anything then. There was no ransom. Not dime one. Not dime one. Because yeah, I, them, I they didn't remember, know we did it to him. Oh no, I was. I'm also. I'm confusing that case with the Jose Escobar case, where uh, you just wore them down so much that eventually they all. Left, like, because a commodity declines in value over time. Exactly. If it's just being, you know, right. stored. And as soon as you take them out of how long they expect the kidnapping to take. The first time I really began to realize that kidnapping negotiation applied directly to business was when I first learned kidnapping negotiation. And uh, my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, Dennis Braden, phenomenal human being, he said, look, whatever country you go into, you have to understand that terrorists have got, are going to have an opening ask they're going to have an amount that they want to settle for from the family of the company, and they're going to have a certain number of days that they're going to expect this to last. And it's going to, every country is going to be different, but within that country, it's going to be very consistent. And I thought to myself, this is a market for people. This is a market price for human beings, and this is a, this is a turnover of inventory of human beings. What about in cases, though, where there's been long extended kidnappings like Terry Anderson in Beirut, for instance? right. right. Because Six the, years, right? The, the market has adapted. Terry, Terry Anderson, uh, who's, who's, as far as I'm concerned, is an American hero who, who I've had the pleasure of meeting. When he was, re, when he was uh, released, he met his six-year-old daughter for the first time. His fiance was pregnant when, when he got grabbed. Uh, and that went into an extended period of time, but their market had slowly adapted and evolved because Hezbollah put up an infrastructure that they controlled and they could hold people for longer and longer periods of time. And then depending upon the combativeness of the hostage and the willingness of the other side to, to interact and, and negotiate, you know, they eventually extended their market, uh, their market timing so that they could hold somebody for that long. And, and, and any kidnapping organization, the longer they are in business, the FARC in Columbia holds people for 10 years. Mm. You know, th they'll come to that eventually when they build their infrastructure to be able to hold on to the commodity. So how did you first get into this like even just hearing these stories makes me feel anxiety <laughs> like <laughs> you put yourself into that on purpose and obviously you did a great thing you're an american hero but what how did you how did you get into this well I, you know i was an fbi agent i'd been on the swat team why were you an fbi agent uh, you know i was trying to find steady work <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of cool right i'm in the fbi <laughs> yeah no i was a cop always wanted to be a cop i was a cop in kansas city missouri loved the job uh, became interested in federal law enforcement. Uh, I, I, I can tell, I know that my accent gives me away. I'm from Iowa. I definitely have the Iowa accent, right? 
<laughs> I can never tell. So, uh, but I was, I was, uh, I, I'd become an FBI agent because I got interested in federal law enforcement. And uh, I found out that sometimes federal guys got to travel around the world. And, you know, I had, I had never been to Mexico at that point in time in my life, and I'd seen Canada from across the border. No international travel. And that intrigued me. I, you know, I didn't know that, uh, that I was going to enjoy it that much. And then the opportunity to do that and, and to take on challenging stuff. I, in, in hindsight, I remember hearing about terrorist groups, and I was felt very strongly about combating terrorism. I thought terrorists should be in jail. And I think if uh, terrorists, domestic or international, there's one of two places for them, and one of them is jail. And the other is not political office, which some end up in, interestingly enough. Well, well but you make a good point. Like, t- fighting against... Um, terrorism or terrorists is not the same as fighting another country. So you're, you're fighting a completely, you're not, you're not fighting a political organization that has an arsenal of weapons that right. fights in some pseudo traditional way. You're fighting against people who are using techniques like kidnapping to achieve their means or, or, or terrorist threats to achieve their means. And, right. and what we have on our side is I guess money and negotiation bill and media Right. You know, on our side, you know, we've, we've got a system of justice we believe in, and that's a whole separate track we get into easily, but I believe very strongly in the American system of justice. But, you know, we've got a system that we've set up, and we've got, and there are criminals on the other side that decide that they want to kill and kidnap and claim that it's on behalf of some sort of political grievance. And um, 99% of the time it's not. It's because they're criminals and they're thugs, and it's a way for them to be in business and an easier way for them to get guns. So yeah, I wanted I wanted uh, I wanted to combat terrorism. I, you know, I believe in the American system. I know that sounds, you know, maybe that's a cliche, but uh, it's part. It, it's actually it all winds into the. I believe in good solid negotiation. And what, what what do you feel was at this point? So I know you were involved in about 150 negotiations. Um, what was your worst failure? Where you feel like if you had done something a little bit differently, a life would have been saved and. In, retro- in retrospect now, life wasn't saved. Well, in the Burnham Sabero case... Um, this was again in the Philippines. Yeah, it was, it was right after the Schilling case. And, um, you know, I felt that we were inadequate. I didn't feel that we did anything wrong. At that point in time, when at the very end of that case, uh, two out of three of the last kidnapped victims were, were killed in a botched rescue attempt. Uh, scout rangers came accidentally across a terrorist encampment where the hostages were just opened fire indiscriminately. And um, um, Deborah Yap, the final Philippine hostage, who we were looking out for, we were doing the best to save her life, and Martin Burnham were both killed in the friendly fire, and Gracia Burnham was wounded. And uh, it wasn't that we did anything wrong, in my view, it says we weren't enough. We didn't know enough. Mm. And um, in every kidnap negotiator's life, there comes a point in time probably when things go sideways and it just, you know, was, it was the universe not taking it in the right direction. Not necessarily that we made a mistake, but we were inadequate. And at that point in time was my decision like, all right, either I get out of this or we get better. And that's actually when I started collaborating with the guys at Harvard for us to try to get better because I felt like we did everything we knew how to do at that time. You know, we had an internal review. We looked over every decision that we made and nobody had any issues with any of the decisions we'd made along the lines. Well, it seemed like if I remember that case specifically, you were unaware that there was another negotiator also trying to get their release, I guess, family members or something. And it seems like when there's a market um, that that you didn't know about, that's going to unfairly hurt you. 
Right, right. And we didn't understand, I didn't fully understand the idea that we were dealing with an organization and that the most important people were probably the deal killers, not the deal makers. Mm. People that want to snipe your deal or they wanted to do something on the side. You didn't, you didn't account for them. And, and it was at that point in time I thought, okay, all right, we just got to get better, you know. So, so at Harvard you, is also when you started to realize, hey, this is very similar to business negotiation. And I want to kind of get into now some of the specific techniques that work in, in both. And one of the first techniques you talk about is mirroring. Maybe you can describe that a little, and then I, I have some questions on that. Sure. And, and, and mirroring is different than what most people think of it. Mirroring is just repeating the last one to three words of what someone has said. I'm not trying to mirror your affect. I'm not trying to mirror your words, and I'm definitely not trying to mirror your energy level. Well, you're mirroring the words a little bit. Well, I'm repeating the words exactly. But, for example, you know, if you're from Louisiana and you, you talk like a Cajun, I'm not trying to mirror how you talk. I'm not trying to adopt that accent or even even your adjectives or, or your rate of speech. I'm not mirroring any of those things to a uh, hostage negotiation. Could it be a paraphrase or does it have to be the exact words? Um, paraphrase is another skill. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, paraphrase is a great, great for clarification and great for demonstrating understanding. But mirroring is really, I'm trying to keep you talking. I'm trying to keep you expanding. I'm trying to keep you going. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a great way. It's a great test of a lot of things. It, I can test your position with a mirror and you're not going to know that's what I'm doing. I'm not going to know that's what you're doing. I'm not going to know. You're not going to know it's a very nice mirror there very well. You, you're showing off a little bit here. <laughs> well, I see you caught me. it right away, so it wasn't that good. <laughs> well, I, I, I usually do that to the other people. Um, I'm actually a sucker for mirrors. Uh, I'm, I'm a natural born assertive. And assertives love mirrors. I've had people keep me talking through extended periods of time before I found out that they were mirroring me. And of the, we think there's three basic types uh, to conflict, which is uh, equals negotiation. And all three types like mirroring. It, it draws them out. Uh, they don't feel attacked by it. They feel good about the interaction. So we start when I'm teaching it, just repeat the last one to three words of what somebody's just said. And then if you really want to be a show-off, you'll, you'll pick out one to three words within what they've said that you want to clarify. And you'll listen for it and you'll wait. It's, it's one of those things that a friend of mine, Ned Coletti, is a former GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers, fantastic general manager of a baseball team. And he says, uh, you know, in every two-hour conversation, there's going to be 90 seconds of solid gold in the middle. It's going to tell you everything about the deal. That's really interesting. So in every two-hour conversation, there's going to be 90 seconds of solid gold. Right. And so what's an example? So he's involved, obviously, in these almost ludicrous negotiations where a, a guy hitting a wooden bat is wants $60 right. million. Barry Bonds. He negotiated the Barry Bonds deal with the four, uh, with the, uh, the San Francisco Giants. Yeah. So, so what ludicrous. might be the 90 seconds of gold there? Well, there's going to be a change in tone of voice or there's going to be a change in an adjective or change in a characterization. And he would always say, an agent might say, you know, I think I can get 20 and 10 versus I've got 20 and 10, or I think he's worth 20 and 10. You know, whatever the vernacular is, it's going to be what's led up to that. And there's going to be a change in tone uh, because I've got 20 and 10. They're going to say it very much like the late night FM DJ. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't understand that, actually. So you say you, almost the very first thing you say is, in a negotiation, you use your late night FM DJ voice. What is that voice? Because I tried to think to myself, how do I sound like a late night FM DJ? I couldn't think of it. Well, it's like uh, one contract negotiation I was in where they wanted to work for higher clause. I simply said, we don't do work for hire. 
So, okay, uh, like if I'm, let's say I'm negotiating for a salary increase um, and I'm making 50,000 and I want to make 55,000, what might I say in that voice? Like, I can't, I, I can't work for 50,000 anymore. Well, I can only take 55,000. All right. And why does that work? Why does the late night FM DJ voice work? You know, it's it's kind of freaky the way it works because it the other side gets the feeling that you are rock solid. And you're like really serious. Yeah. And um, it's a way of, without angering them, saying this is it. You know, it's a way to imply take it or leave it. On this point, um, and I do this exercise all the time in my in my classes at USC and at Georgetown. I did it just two nights ago, Georgetown. Now, when I use that tone of voice, you will, since you will feel that there is nowhere to go, your thought processes will almost come to a complete halt. And you will stop, and inside you will be like, oh, my God, where do I go? You'll be mystified. So and, if someone was using that voice against you, what would you, how would you, you would recognize it, right? right. And then what would you do in, in, to react? Well, more than likely what I'm going to do if that was done to me is I'd mirror it. Mm. And when I mirrored it, I, you know, I, it, if, for example, somebody said, we don't do work for hire in that voice, I'd go, work for hire? And if they said, work for hire, that's no expansion. It's the same tone, tone of voice. But if there's softness in that position, and when I go work for hire, if the other side says, yeah, it's just really difficult for us to do work for hire. Well, that's an expansion. And now that I know there's some room there, there's some softness. And there. then you could do the uh, calibrated question like, well, how can we get something equivalent to work for hire in here? Right. Um, how, how do we work this out? Hmm. How, how do we so take you make it, it as broad account? as possible rather than what I said? You just were more general than what I said. Right. Or, you know, the flip side, if, if you don't want to ask a question, then I could use a label and, I, and I'd say, like, it sounds like there's something more here. Hmm. And they'll react to that because there are some people that just don't like answering questions until they've thought nine million different possibilities through before the answer. And I need a response now. And it's one of the differences that we bring because you need questions answered in every business negotiation but asking the question is probably not the best way to get the answers. And a hostage negotiator and these hostage negotiation techniques are designed to trigger information voluntarily without making the other side feel cornered, which keeps the relationship going and makes you want to continue to deal with someone. It seems like the hard thing in a hostage negotiation from your side is that you can't just say, well, kill him then. Like, we don't care. Right. Like, you can't really, there's no walking away from the negotiation like in a business negotiation. No, there's no walking away from the negotiation, but I can imply that if you're not going to talk with me, we're not going to talk. And I can also imply that if you get angry with me, we're not going to talk. Or I'll, I'll say, if, you're, if you start getting angry with me, I'll say something effective. Look, I can't hear you when you're yelling at me. Right. So, and the idea there is, is that they still need something. The whole reason you're talking anyway is because they need something from you. So they want to continue the conversation. Right. If somebody's yelling at you, they want to continue the conversation. Hmm. And if they raise their voice, it means they really want to get through to you. So there's this great handcuffing effect of saying, I can't hear you when you yell at me. 
they realize that their yelling is counterproductive to what they want, and they have a choice. Do I get what I want, or do I continue to beat this person up? Well, ultimately, I'm beating you up because of what I want, and that will win out. So, so I have some basic questions, like, and this is um, some of the things you say in the book run contrary, as you know, to many advice and negotiation books. So, so I should buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I am recommending your book. So uh, like anchoring, for instance. So a lot of advice is let the other person throw out the first number. But I have found in my own business negotiation that I want to have control of that first number. And, and your book seems to agree with that. But a, a lot of typical advice is let them throw out the first numbers because you might throw out something too low, for instance. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I like letting the other side go first. I mean, there, there's a lot of back and forth on this, a lot of back and forth on it. A lot of it is stylistic. Uh, I know that in our interactions, if I've gone too high too soon, it makes deals go away. Hmm. Um, some really A really bad philosophy that I think a lot of people believe in is I've never lost money on a deal I didn't make. Well, that's not necessarily true because you're not counting the amount of money you're losing by not making those wait, deals. Wait, let me process that. I never lost money on a deal I didn't make. Um, so they're saying like if they walk away from the deal, they're not going to lose money on it. Right, right, right. And that's why those people like to throw out high numbers early. Mm. Um, and, and in reality, a high number is really a test to the other side. And a lot of people don't see that. You know, a high anchor will make people walk away and not talk any, any anymore. They're not invested in the deal. They want a number early on. They don't want to work that hard. They're asking you for a price. And, you know, if you throw a price that's too high too soon, you've missed what could be on the table. Plus, you know, price is very emotional. Um, As soon as somebody starts to throw a price at, um, the other side is thinking like, well, this is what I'm worth. Well, if your thought is this is what I'm worth, you're getting emotional. So prices, and it's one of the things about uh, every negotiation that immediately, uh, every negotiation is emotional. So, so you're saying then let let try to get them to throw out the first price. So let me let, let me ask you a question. So this is the this is what I usually do in a negotiation is I'll say something to the effect of, and you you, you could tell me if this is a bad idea or a good idea. I'll say t- something to the effect of, listen, this is like a grandmaster of chess playing an amateur, and I'm the amateur. I don't really know. Your Everybody so that says well. that is actually very dangerous, so I appreciate the fact that uh, you're trying to <laughs> diminish your abilities. Right, so I'm trying to diminish my abilities, and I'll say, listen, I don't know your industry. You need to tell me what, how to think about this. What's your advice on what I should be asking for? Well, ranges are very good. Uh, a lot of times, I want to trigger a number from the other side because I can only push them so far on price anyway, and what I'm really after is what can they give me that's non-price related that's exceptionally valuable. And you're going to have something that you haven't thought of because you don't know everything about me. And I want to trigger that. And a lot of times it's visibility. A lot of times it's access. A lot of times it's marketing. Uh, You know, I did, uh, if you've got a publication or you're affiliated with a group that has access to a publication. I did uh, did a talk for uh, National Contract Management Association in Massachusetts. And they couldn't pay me a fee. And through the conversation, I found out they could buy a book for everybody that attended. They had, the national chapter wanted to help them, and the national chapter had a magazine. So we can place an article in a national chapter and has tremendously wide visibility, and the person that wrote it from the local chapter gets visibility. The national chapter gets a speaker for the local chapter, and nobody spent a dime. And they've got a magazine that they got to put good content in anyway. 
Well, that, and that's a really important point that um, you're looking at not only what financial you can ask for, but all the non-cash assets you can right. that are potentially on the list. They might not even be thinking that way. They might right. be thinking, well, all we can afford is $5,000 for this guy, but you're, you have this whole list of other things that you could potentially ask for. Right, right. And so I start triggering that right away by throwing out ideas. I might throw a high range but I want to. I want to look as if I'm as flexible as possible from the very beginning, and I really want to work with you. Now, if if you still want just a number and you don't want to talk about flexibility, then I immediately know that you're not going to be a great business partner. But what about like what about if both sides? So you're waiting for a number or a range or something, and they're also aware of this advice. They're waiting for a number range. How do you get the other side to throw out the first number? Um, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of game where you go first, I go first, you go first. And then I'll just simply look, I'll say, and I've said this, look, it seems like you've got a range in mind. It it seems like you've got limits here. But I find people to be very responsive to the range idea. Hmm. Um, We are overly conditioned in in the business world now not to throw out a number. And if if I ask you for a number, you're going to dodge it. If you ask me for a number, I'm going to dodge that as well. I think I think also you you vaguely mention um, in the book, or you sort of mention uh, maybe not maybe not get the other side to throw out a number or even a range, but a method of deriving a number. So, like I can ask you uh, if I'm negotiating with you, and we don't always throw out a number. I could say, how are you going to come up with a number to value my business, for instance? Exactly. That's another. Uh, how questions are general. How questions are great questions. Um, they they can be a way to qualify or disqualify depending upon how the question is phrased. Yeah, if I say, how can we make this work? Um, then I know right away, if you begin to uh, collaborate with me on that, there's a pretty good chance we're going to work something out. If you say to me, how do I know what you're going to teach is going to work? You're actually looking to, to disqualify me. And I need to know that as soon as possible because I want to close out positively and I want to move on. So how questions are very powerful and you need to look at the words that are followed on as to whether or not they're trying to engage or disqualify. And if they're disqualifying, then fine. Like there's something about this doesn't work for you. We need to part company positively because if I'm talking to you at all, that means you're in my world and I'm going to have to live with the consequences of whether or not you like me or not. Well, okay. So let's look at those situations. Let's say two business partners are, are negotiating a split. Right. And uh, like they're they're separating their company and or one's buying the other out or whatever, uh, and they hate each other. Right, and which often happens. There's a lot of emotions involved. Um, how do you deal with someone you hate who hates you? Uh, I, I'll, I'll get an intermediary in to talk me down. Mm. And that's what we do in a lot of our coaching. Uh, we've got, we're coaching several transactions that are like that right now. Now, I know, I knew as a hostage negotiator, now we could, you could probably say as a scientist, um, when there are negative feelings, the identification of negative feelings uh, diminishes them. There's some scientific evidence right now that actually shows that that's in fact the case. Uh, and there's a fine line between identifying and denying. And I make a real big point of always saying, look, if I if you didn't like me and I would say, look, I don't want you to think I'm a jerk, that would be a denial and it would make things worse. So wait, if uh, if I start the negotiation saying I don't I don't want you to think I'm a jerk, right. that's not that's not that's good. a denial. I right. don't want you okay. to think, hmm. or I don't want to seem like. Um, and the denial is different than the identifying. And, and if we're talking, I say, look, I'm sure it seems like I'm a jerk. I'm sure it looks like that I don't care about you at all. I'm sure it seems like that that I have really treated you badly over the years. Now that's just identification, not denial. 
And instead of reinforcing that, the science now shows us that diminishes those negative feelings every single time. Wow. And, and it works. It's most people are scared to do it. And that's why they want to deny it. And, that, and that's why, well, my experience is every time I do that, that it made it worse. Well, you didn't realize you actually said, I don't want you to think. So when you take the emotions out of it, like, and you're starting to deflate the emotions there with, with right. the right. Um, agreeing of the emotions, but not the denying of the emotions, how do you then move from there to, to fair? You know, and, and I'd like to point also, I'm not agreeing. I'm, I'm identifying. Mm. You know, I never said I am. I have been a jerk. I'd say, I sure, it seems like I've been a jerk. And we use that really proactively. And you say it about yourself, though. You don't say, it seems like you think I'm a jerk. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. What's the difference there? I'm showing fearlessness. Mm. I'm showing appreciation. Mm. Um, I'm showing that I'm not the least bit rattled by it. I'm not worried, worried by it. You know, and showing fearlessness in the face of adversity is a great way to inspire confidence in you from the other side. Mm. And that's my intention. Um, and then I'm, I'm also trying to show like, look, you can call me on some stuff and I'm not going to be scared of it. And at some point in time that actually increases your trust factor in me. Cause I never said I was going to be on your side, but as soon as you think that you can count on what I say, you don't have a problem with me not being on, on your side. All you want to know is whether or not I have the ability to back up my word mm. and that I'm, I'm not afraid of any, any negativity and I want to work on it. And that makes deals because deals break down after agreement. Um, and really where money is made or lost is after agreement and implementation. Mm. And we're going to have problems, and you, you're, I'm going to need you to know you can come to me with problems and we'll fix them. That's what I'm really driving at, that I'll always be a good partner. Mm. And, a, and a lot of, you know, I love the way Mark Cuban tests people on Shark Tank because he seems like a tough negotiator, and what he's really doing is he knows it's a tough business world, and if you can hold your own with him in the negotiation on a Shark Tank, that means that you can hold your own for him when you're in business together. What's a negotiation technique you've seen him use on Shark Tank? He says, take it or leave it. Look, before you talk to any of the sharks, you either accept or reject my offer right now, and you don't have the opportunity to talk to anybody else. What's a good response there? And the best response I ever heard was one of the contestants, one of the entrepreneurs, said to him, you wouldn't want me to get pushed around like that if I was negotiating on your behalf. Mm, I like that. And Cuban just went, okay. You know, and you pass the test. Hmm. You know, you're a great ambassador for me now if you could stand up respectfully and not get pushed around. But it was a great response. And, that's, and, and I've always loved the way that he's negotiated because he knows that it's a tough world out there. You want to be able to engage, be engage in conflict without being combative and say no without, you know, screaming at the other person or losing your control. Right, which, so so getting back to, like, you're negotiating with someone where there's emotions involved, you've toned down your emotions, you've kind of deflated them a little bit, what's what's next? Well, at that point in time, now I start to work on the positives, which is counterintuitive. Um, because most people want to start out with the positives without having dealt with the negatives. Hmm. Let me get the negatives out of the way, now I can grow the positives. And so, it's, and then I'll, in terms of the future, so two pit partners that are breaking up, all right, so how do we make this deal from where we are now where we both have secured the best future possible for us? So, so again, throwing out the open-ended how, how question. Yeah, a, a how how question. seems like the critical thing. Mirroring, how, getting rid of the, the negatives first. At some point in time, your how is going to be where you make a lot of ground if you don't have solutions up to that point in time that haven't already presented themselves. And for implementation's sake, 
You need the other side to come up with the ideas. Well, well, what if they say, I don't know how, you tell me how. And I'd say, well, it seems like, and then I'll throw out a possibility. And I want to see whether or not you embrace it. And it's a little bit of understanding the difference between that's right and you're right. Because now at this point in time, if I'm throwing out ideas, I need you to say that's right instead of you're right. Okay, let me ask you about that. Because in the book, you also say you encourage the method of getting them to say no first. And then in the very next chapter, you want to, you say, uh, you encourage them to get to, uh, to say, that's right. So what's, when do you want someone to say no? Well, if, if I, if I need to sort of wake them up, mm-hmm. um, if I need to get them a little more aware of what's going on at the moment, you know, and a great question is, do you want me to fail? Do you want to leave money on the table? It's really kind of the opposite of all the yes trap questions that everybody springs on us all the time. Like what's a yes trap question? Um, would you like to make more money? Hmm. Uh, so like set a, kind of a slick sales thing. Right, right, right. You know, most most yeses are uh, little breadcrumbs that are leading us into a bear trap. So like in the car salesman case, instead of saying something like, look, would you really like to do a deal here? You, you might say uh, something like, um, I don't know, would it be good for you if I just walk out of here and never come back? Or is doing a deal a bad idea? Okay, is negotiating is, a bad idea here? Yeah, is, is, is this ridiculous? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I caught uh, Jack Welch off guard with one of these, with a no question. Uh, he's signing books, and I look at him. I want him to come speak in my class at USC. And I got to get his contact information to find out what his calendar is. And I got to get to his uh, personal assistant. And so I walk up to him, and he doesn't know me from Adam. At a book signing, you know, he, you know, I could be, I could be a stalker, I could be a homeless guy in a nice suit. He doesn't know who the heck I am. And I just look at him and I say, "Is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak to the course I teach at University of Southern California?" And and he looked up high and left, and he got this really stern look on his face, and he froze, and he and he got this look on his face like he was furious. And then I was, and then he didn't move. And then I thought. He just had a stroke. <laughs> I thought I just killed Jack Welch. But he stared really hard up, up and high to, to his left for, it seemed like an eternity. It must have only been five seconds. And then he looks back at me and he gives his personal assistant contact information. That's so funny because, uh, uh, so if, as opposed to saying, will you speak right. uh, at my USC thing where you're looking for a yes, right. um, you kind of positioned it where it was like he kind of, almost didn't know whether to say no or yes. He did not, he couldn't decipher the question almost. Well, I want him to think the word no. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it's not ridiculous because there's an emotional reaction that happens when we say no. We are protected. We center ourselves. We don't worry about what we've let ourselves in for. You know, I, I took an idea from Jim Camp, start with no. His book was make the other side comfortable feeling no. And we started experimenting like, well, if they're comfortable, if they can't say no, what happens if they do say no? And we found out that every single time people say no, they feel protected. And if they feel protected, they're more willing to listen. But this this seems a little contrary to what's called um, Absolutely. The, the, the yes ladder. Like when Absolutely. you're selling something, yep. you get somebody to say some easy yeses in a row and right. then you make them more and more complex. And the same thing with interrogation. If I'm interrogating you because I suspect you're a spy or something, I might get you to say... Uh, some simple yeses, and then the questions get harder, and I see how your body changes, and your, and so on. So, so again, it seems like there's a lot of focus on in these different techniques of getting people to say yes, but you're saying no is actually more important. Yeah, you know what? And that might have worked 50 years ago, mm-hmm. 
Um, and we have all been so hammered by this over and over and over again that I've never seen anybody not pull back and get defensive the first time I try to pull a yes out of them. Mm. Because we're like battered children with yes. You know, so, you know, it, it, a battered child doesn't matter. You're trying to hug them. They f still flinch because they're used to being hit. So, like, an example of the battered child, what would you do with a battered child? Well, just take it, first of all, stop doing that. Stop doing what scares them. You know, move one, stop doing the bad stuff. And move two has actually been, you know, what happens when people say no? And we found, uh, we found out that they feel protected. I mean, we have field tested this, and it works across cultures. The cultures that are stereotypes for never saying no, and those stereotypes are basically uh, the Arab culture and the Asian culture, and I get these guys to say no all the time. But like how? What's the, what's the way? Have you given up on this project? Hmm. No. Um, do you want us to fail? No. Um, do you want this to go nowhere? No. Because they, they we're triggering a no on a couple of levels. Plus, we're triggering a no that rescues the other side sometimes, too. And people feel good about that. And we're triggering a no that protects from loss. That's the biggest one. Protecting from the feeling of loss, there's some psychologists that believe that all our decisions are governed by where we're afraid of the loss. And other psychologists don't say all decisions, but they put the percentage extremely high. One way or the other, I know that fear of loss is a huge trigger. And I learned that in hostage negotiation, and we started to experiment with it in business negotiation. You know, my classes are laboratories, MBA students, rising star business ex executives. On their way up, hungry, want to get better, negotiating real deals from Wall Street to um, extremely expensive real estate in the Hollywood Hills. So, so, so you're negotiating, let's, let's say you're on Wall Street, you're negotiating for uh, a, a big salary bonus in your salary. What's a, what's a way, what's a question to ask to, where the first response is no? Um, do you want me to fail? Do you want me to fail at this job? Do, or? You, want, do you want me to move on? Uh, do you want me to miss the, op the opportunities where I can bring stuff to the table? It's ridiculous what people are willing to say no to. I mean, utterly absurd. Because when you say no, you've let yourself in for nothing. You've completely protected yourself. You can say no, I don't want you to fail. And feel like you've let your, you haven't trapped yourself into anything because the horizon is now virtually open. You haven't agreed to anything. So, no, of course I don't want you and, to fail. And then you veer into you want to get them to th say that's right as opposed to you're right. Yeah. You want to start to summarize it from their perspective. Um, you, you want to trigger some epiphanies. You want to start building out a structure based on a future, future success. A hostage negotiator says, I want to see you live through this. A business negotiator says, how can I be involved in critical projects that are uh, necessary to the strategic future of the organization? That now completely reframes the conversation and also your positioning in it. Because now, if I'm responsible for your financial future, the success of it, now suddenly I like you. You're going to help me make more money. And, that's, and also, um, I've come to learn in the business sector that supervisors, employers, see the people under them, unfortunately, as selfish people because the only time a subordinate walks into my office is when he wants something from me. Subordinates don't walk into the boss's office and say, hey, boss, how can I help you today? Subordinate walks into the boss's office because I want to raise. I want more. I want this. I want that. And bosses are conditioned that the only time a subordinate walks into the office is when they're being very self-centered. And people don't see that. So as, many, as soon as you begin to start talking about the future together, 
Now, and you're you helping yourself is by helping me. It's a different conversation. And how do you distinguish between, like, how do you get them to say that's right versus you're right? So let's take the salary uh, negotiation as an example. Uh, and that and that's a it's a great question. The scary part of it, I've got to talk about it. How you see it emotionally in a way almost talks you into it. So in a salary negotiation, I might say like, look, you know, you work really hard. Um, you work really hard to support me. I'm sure it's going to seem very ungrateful for me to come in and ask for more money. I'm sure it's going to seem uh, short-sighted of me to look at the uh, things that I've contributed and automatically think that entitles me to more money. Hmm. Because that's what the guy is thinking. That's what the guy or gal above me is thinking. And they're, they'll be startled like that. And they won't realize how much you've caught them off guard. And it's a combination of labeling the negatives, but from their perspective. And, you know, I, I wish we had the science on this. Uh, I just know on a regular basis from kidnappers in the Philippines to business people in Korea, you know, I've had enough people do this across the world and trigger breakthrough in negotiations that I just know it works. Well, I know in, um, like in Robert Cialdini's influence and a lot of, uh, discussion of, of like copywriting and sales, addressing the negatives as quickly as possible is often a good technique because if the, if you kind of outsource the negatives to them, they're going to stop trusting you. Right. Addressing it. And there's a critical distinction because it's our normal reaction to want to deny the negatives or to say, I don't want you to think. And I'm a big fan of Cialdini stuff. And I've had the, the privilege of being on the same stage as him lecturing. I think he's a brilliant guy. And we studied Cialdini's stuff when I was a hostage negotiator because he talks about universal principles of human nature. And that's what hostage negotiation then takes these principles and basically instrumentalizes them. You know, here's a principle. Now, here's how you get it done. And you use a hostage negotiation skill. And both us and Cialdini have showed that because we're dealing with human beings, it doesn't matter if you're in the Philippines or in Korea or in Iraq. We're still human beings. I thought there was a good technique in the book where you start, you're, you're talking money, 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 but then you start to bring in the non-cash alternatives to sort of suggest that one part of the negotiation is done somehow, and, and but there's still more to kind of squeeze out of this. So maybe you can describe, elaborate a little more on that. Well, yeah, and it, you know, in the business world, we call it terms and conditions. And people are getting killed over terms and conditions. You know, I'm talking to a, a huge multinational company, American-based, just the other day, and they're saying, yeah, we agree on a price, and it takes us six months to work through terms and conditions. You know, and so these are the non-monetary things that are involved in the deal. And the sooner you get involved in, in understanding what those are and then draw those people in because the lawyers on the other side are going to kill you with terms and conditions after you think you have a deal. Mm. And they're the deal killers. In the Philippines, we had deal killers that weren't involved in the negotiations. And in the United States, you got deal killers that are not involved in the negotiations. And the other side's corporate counsel are going to kill you over terms and conditions. And so the sooner you actually draw that in into the process, the sooner you get the deal done. And that's why... Don't be in such a rush to get price because you drop your guard and then you get worn out over terms and conditions and you give in to terms and conditions that'll destroy the deal for you. Well, also it seemed like, um, like let's say you're negotiating salary and you say 150, the other side says 120. It seems like you could say, listen, 140 plus I also need a car or an extra week of vacation or something. It seems like the non bringing in the terms and conditions within 
the monetary discussion sort of kind of puts a, you know, ends the monetary discussion for you in a good way? Well, it can end it. I mean, you could, you know, what makes, what makes 100 a good deal for you? Uh, a hundred, a hundred might be a great deal if it positions you for the 140 the next year, you know, a significant jump subsequently on. So you're going to need title. You're going to need responsibility. Terms and conditions are, you know, how am I successful here? Mm-hmm. And then the critical term and condition in a job deal is really latching yourself on to critical strategic projects for the future. Because what that does more than anything else, and I read an article today about uh, knowing that you're being set up for promotion when you're suddenly being invited into meetings that you weren't invited into otherwise. Mm-hmm. The minute you're in critical projects for strategic future of a company, you now get begin to get visibility with the highest levels of the company getting invited to the meetings that you weren't invited to otherwise, or at least now the CEO knows your name. Who's working on this product project that's critical to our strategic future? I need to know who they are, and I need to make sure that they're successful because my success is intertwined in it. And that really begins to change the job discussion and move you forward much quicker than, than, than a different title would or a car would or an expense account would because you need the people at the top to be able to see you. And this short circuits an entire process. Uh, another technique you talk about is using sort of odd numbers, like, you know, saying, okay, I want, a, you know, because it, it makes it seem like you made this calculation. I want $143,957.31 because that seems to be the average of all the people in my right, industry right, with my job. Right. So coming with the specific numbers seems to be a good technique. Right. Coming in with a specific number makes the other side think that there's a lot of thought into that number and it's probably a rock solid number. And it's far less negotiable if I were to say, you know, I want $15,000 for this. No, I want $14,875. If I say $15,000, you're going to think that's an opening offer. If I say $14,875, you're going to see like, okay, wow, that, uh, that has a lot of thought into it. Probably about 20% of the time you'll ask me for what backs that up. And then if I back it up, then then we got a rock-solid number. Now, is this also a technique for determining if someone is lying to you? Uh, it, yes, absolutely. Um, asking for solid numbers and then asking if they backed it up is just really— it, it ties in other things with implementation and visioning and whether or not the numbers are good. Like if you were in, like in your FBI role, if you were interrogating somebody, how could you tell if they were lying to you? I'm going to talk to them long enough where I know what they look like when they tell the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, great uh, law enforcement interrogator, and that's actually the way a polygraph um, works. You sit down for a polygraph, and they tell you what the control questions are, what are the questions that, you know, what's your name, what's your mother's name, what did you have for breakfast, um, what did you do yesterday, uh, questions that you should tell me the truth on. Um, and then if you start ducking and dodging, then then I know that you never tell the truth. But I'll lay down a base of what you look like when you're telling the truth. That's all I need to know. And, and what do you look for physically or in tone or whatever? Right. And everybody's got a, a slightly different way of telling the truth. Generally, it's straight-ahead eye contact. Generally, it's not looking away. Generally speaking, it's a downward-inflecting tone like that. And generally, it's concise. When you know you're telling the truth, you think the truth is blatantly obvious, you're not going to try to back it up. You know, there's the, what they say, the Pinocchio effect, the more words you use to try to convince me, you know you're lying. You're worried about it. You're going to try to add, add, add to it because you know it's a lie and you need to be convincing. That's the Pinocchio effect. Longer, more words, longer nose, more likely they're lying. When I'm telling the truth, 
and, and this is what a lot of people have trouble with. I'll get angry with you if you don't believe me. And if I, you know, if I do the American overseas, which is I just get louder and use the exact same words, that correlates highly, not a thousand percent, but that's a good indicator of telling the truth. And more cases have been cracked with good in, uh, interviewers, good interrogators saying, all right, let's look, let's find out what he looks like when he's telling the truth. And then we're going to ask the hard questions. And if we get that look, if we get that form, we know he's telling the truth. If he looks away, if if he does anything other than the affect of telling them the truth, we know he's lying. So I guess with the negotiating, a similar thing happens. If they're saying they're going to kill the hostage or we're going to walk away from this deal, you, you, how do you then assess if they're telling the truth? Change in tone of voice. Um, I will have talked to him long enough. You know, for me, the small talk is not just developing rapport, but getting a real beat on what you're like when you're relaxed and you're telling the truth. Um, it's a faster way of figuring that out than spending eight hours on a golf course with you. Because all the time you spend on a golf course, you see when a guy shades and when he doesn't, when he kicks the ball into the fairway, and whether or not, you know, that, that's that's all the avenues for lying and telling the truth. I get it much faster in a conversation. You know, my small talk is not focused as much on getting you to smile and laugh as, as just getting a good feel from what you look like when you're telling the truth. Hmm. Now, when we get into this, if you make a threat and 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 your threat is with a lot of words or change in tone of voice, then I know that you're, you're threatening me. And the specificity of the threat, whether or not you left yourself an out, the adjectives that you used and a change in your tone of voice. What's like a, a adjectives? What, what do you mean by the adjectives you use? Well, uh, it might be, you know, I'm, I'm ridiculously furious with you right now. Or to tell you the truth, I'm going to walk away from this deal. Uh, or, or, you know, to be honest with you, I don't like the way this is going. And so what does that mean? Well, this is the first time you said to tell the truth or to be honest with you. That's the first time you brought that in. Uh, and it's a great tell. Because, does that mean they're not going to be honest with me? They're not being honest with me right then? Or? Well, it, it, what it means is uh, I've been ducking and dodging up to this point in time. It means one of two things. I've been ducking and dodging all along. Or when somebody says, to be honest with you, it's also an indicator that I'm worried about how you're going to react to the next thing I say. And because I'm worried about it, I'm trying to settle you down a little bit. Now, either the next thing I'm going to say is going to be the, the blunt, hard truth and nothing up to now has been. Or the next thing I'm going to say is going to be a lie. And I've been telling you the truth so so much. I'm now concerned about my lie. And again, I'm worried about the way you're going to react. And that's why you, you just keep in track of the conversation up to that point. That's a solid goal that Ned Coletti was talking about. That's a change. And so now I got to put it in context. And if I take if I take my time and if I'm not in a hurry, then I can put it in context and I got a great feel for it. So in business, uh, I just want to take this one step further. In business, let's say someone says, to be honest with you, up to this, I, to be honest with you, given what you just said, um, I feel like walking away from the deal. Well, how would you respond to that if I said that? To be honest with me? Yeah, yeah I, I'm saying I'm negotiating with you. That's how I'd respond. Oh, 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 I see. <laughs> <laughs> Which I got you. I did a little bit of a mirror then. You kept talking. Right. You extended the conversation. Right. Got you back because you got me earlier. But that, that is exactly what my response would be. And I would say, to be honest with me, um, I've seen other people who have been very confrontative. And, at, 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 uh, you know, you might also say, look, I would hope that you would be honest with me. I would hope that you've been honest with me up to now. And then I got I to gotta go silent. I got I to gotta shut the front door. I got I to gotta, I gotta, I gotta have to shut up. 
Silence is a critical technique as well. Comfort with silence is a strength that a lot of people don't have. And it's enormously powerful. And I'm engaged in a negotiation with a very assertive lawyer who happened to be a woman. Didn't make any difference that she was a woman because a lot of men do this too. And she couldn't stand silence. A lot of men can't stand silence. And to get her to, to shut up and listen, and again, it had nothing to do with her gender. I asked her a no question because I didn't want her to feel out of control. And I said, did it ever occur to you to not talk? And she went dead silent. And to her credit, she said, no. (laughs) But I stopped her dead in her tracks and made her think about what would happen if she didn't talk, which she was horrified by. But since the answer was no, she felt comfortable going dead silent when she'd said no because she felt protected by saying no. And it was completely contrary because she made a great, she made great arguments like lawyers do, make an argument, make an argument, make an argument, which means they feel out of control when they're not talking, which means when you go silent, if you want them to keep talking and keep talking until they give you that 90 seconds of solid gold, then just go silent on them. Mm. But since she was on my side of the table, I needed her to see the power in going silent herself, which she was very uncomfortable with. Because, yeah, to your point, being silent allows you to get them to give you the 90 seconds of gold at some point. Exactly. So so is there any technique? Like, I, I didn't mention, and people should read your book for the Ackerman, uh, Six Steps of Negotiating, because right. I thought that was a very interesting kind of step-by-step way to get to a price. But, uh, but are there any critical things I'm missing here that are, are basic techniques and how you've done negotiation? Well, I, you know, I think it's real important to really let the other side talk first. Um, so many people are so intent on making their argument and what they have to say, they're not going to hear a word that you say until they get theirs out anyway. And how do you get them started? Uh, What's the best way? Um, first of all, more than likely, just see if they'll start on their own. M- the vast majority of preparation in the private sector is how do we make our case? And so they're going to be dying to start. They're going to be dying for the first moment. Let's say I'm selling a company. Okay, so I'm presenting my company to a bigger company. Right. They might not even, they might get into, we're all in the conference room, you know, three people on my side, three people on their side. They might not even really know anything about me. They might start off and say, so what are we talking about here? How how do I kind of get them talking more? You know, or or maybe that's a case where I need to just, you know, no, lay out the You know, then I'd label that. I'd say, seems to me like you probably were really prepared for this moment. <laughs> that's funny. And, you know, a label will trigger it. Hmm. You know, what? what's in fact the case? Yes, they prepared. Yes, they have things they want to say. Yes, they're dying to get stuff off their chest. Yes, they're trying to make their points first. So if 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 they've got enough self-control to try to wait for me to go first, but I know they're burning to, to have their say, then I'll use my innocent label and my late night FM DJ voice. And I'll say, you know, my feel for this is that you put a lot of thought into this and you have some strong opinions. Mm-hmm. And then they're probably off to the races. Anything else? Um, um, other Like I, I thought the most powerful technique in the book that I hadn't really thought that much before was the the calibrated questions, the how, and kind of outsourcing to them as much talking as possible. So, so there are any other, and, and the silence as well. So are there any other like big kind of techniques I'm missing here? 
Well, you know, we've underscored trying to stop trying to get the other side to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And But that's huge. I mean, the minute you get out of that, you have a brand new negotiation. Because, again, everybody else that talked to them that day has been trying to drag yes out of them and then try to drag them into a trap with those yeses. And so the minute you stop doing that, you immediately are different. They immediately like you because they're, 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 not, they're not getting battered with trying to get a yes pulled out of them. I, th- I think related to that, um, and you mentioned this uh, in the appendix of your book, is putting together a kind of a preparation worksheet. And again, you even say, don't fetishize about it. But I, I can picture in my mind being confused in the moment, but maybe preparing in advance. Okay, here's what I'm going to ask to get to a no, you know, initially, or here's what I'm going to ask to label, or here's what I'm going to ask to, here are the how questions I can ask. I can see putting together that worksheet in advance is important preparation. Right, right. You know, it's a minimal amount of preparation. It doesn't take that much. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you need three to five how and what questions. No more than that. Uh, In advance, three to five labels to trigger conversation to keep things going. The other thing about those two things is like stretching before a big game. If you've thought a couple of them up in advance, then you've loosened up your your mental uh, agility to come up with the perfect label, the perfect how or what question in the midst of the conversation. I feel like I feel like you should be like a couples therapist. Like you could be, <laughs> one side could say something you could and you can mirror it like the last three things they say, and the other side could say something you say, how how does she do that? And uh you all you have to do is just use these techniques back and forth to get a whole dialogue going between the couple. I got a conversation from a a C level Silicon Valley executive female woman. Yeah, forgive me for stumbling over the characterization the other day, and she says, My fiance bought your book. And I so love talking to him now because he's no longer trying to only solve my problem. We have actual conversations. So yeah, it works in relationships too. That's funny. That could be your next book. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, You know, Never Split the Difference by uh, Chris Voss. Great book. I've read it now several times over. Uh, I'm so happy you came on the podcast. Uh, I don't know where you where you must have flown in to come on the podcast. Like I really like to do these things in person like this. Oh, you so you absolutely really appreciate worth it, it, man. You're 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 a superstar. I mean, so many people, so many people are coming to you for solid advice on how to move their business and personal lives forward. So it's an honor to come on the podcast with you. Well, you just won this negotiation. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>